Thanks for checking out the Lakeshore Podcast. If this is your first time listening with us, we want you to know God loves you. We want for your hope in Jesus to be renewed and for your faith to come to life. Wherever you are joining us from, we hope this message encourages you. brought a Bible this morning, open it up to three passages. We're going to look at Romans chapter 1. We're going to go back to the Old Testament, almost to the beginning, in Deuteronomy chapter 29. It's the fourth book into the Old Testament, and then we're coming back to the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 11. I know there's a lot of traveling for some of you, uh, but I'll give you lots of space in between so you can be sure and get there. Romans chapter 1, Deuteronomy chapter 29, and Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, As Pastor Spencer mentioned, this is the last part of a three-part mini-series we've been doing over the summer called Three Essential Things. It's based out of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13. As a pastor, if I could get you to understand three fundamental concepts, three fundamental truths in the Bible, it'll give you a solid foundation that you can start a growing, real-time, relevant relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about religion. I'm not talking about you'll be a better rule follower. I'm talking about you'll start to get it. You'll start to wake up and say, oh, this is an actual relationship with God. And if you can understand uh, three things, faith, hope, and love, but 1 Corinthians 13, 13 ends and says this way, but the greatest of these is love. So we just went in the order that 1 Corinthians 13, 13 tells us. We started with love. And we talked about how much God loves you. And the more you understand God's love for you, the more healing that takes place from a broken and a kind of a, a beat up uh, experience, a journey that we have in this world. And the more then you can let God's love flow through you and, and begin to love others. You'll understand that much more. Then we begin to look at hope. And that's kind of an eye opener to a lot of people because Bible hope is not anything close to the way we use hope. It's not just a wish or a kind of a man, if all th- everything goes great, Bible hope is a framed in expectation. Something that you are absolutely confident. In fact, you're anticipating and expecting this is what your future is going to look like based on what God's promise was to you. So we don't have to do any guesswork. We don't have to be kind of like on pins and needles. Oh, what if it doesn't work? You know, we have God's word guaranteed. In fact, contractually obligating with blood in many, many of these things. And we can frame in an expectation for the future. And then today we're going to talk about this last part. And we're going to look at what faith is really all about. Uh, as Pastor Spencer mentioned, you've got a great little workbook. These are absolutely free. For those of you that like to follow along with notes, or maybe you don't like to take notes while I'm talking, but afterwards you want to go back through, uh, most of the main points will be in here. Um, And also these are digital for those of you that like to do uh, online stuff and you're not so uh, hard copy print stuff. But we're going to start today in Romans chapter 1, and I'm going to do something that we haven't done in a long time. I'm going to kind of wake you up out of your summertime slump here, and I'm going to ask you that we read together Romans chapter 1, verses 18, uh, 16 and 17. Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17. So we're going to be reading in the New King James Version Bible. It's going to come up on the screen right now, and then we're all going to try to read in cadence. I'm not going fast. We're just going to keep a nice pace. But let's, let's believe in our heart this is God's word, and let's be loud and proud of the things that God said, and let's all read this together. Ready? Read. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. Stop. 
I'm sorry for being so rude, but I want to point something out right here, and then we're going to go back and start from the beginning, and I won't interrupt you a second time, I promise. How many of you believe what we just read? The Bible, the gospel, is the power of God to salvation. Now, some of you already you know, raised your hand, but let me see it all together. How many of you believe that the gospel is the power of God to salvation? Let me see your hand. Okay, put your hands down. You're almost right. Now, and I'm not trying to trick you. I just want to point something out that is really, really important in the detail of the scripture. Notice what it says again, and I'm just going to read a couple more words into it, then we'll go back and read it from the beginning. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. Listen, for everyone who believes. Now, this is really important, especially as we get ready to talk about the subject of faith. Because I don't care what's in the Bible, and I don't say that to be in any way demeaning to the, to the Holy Scriptures, but it doesn't matter what God said in the Bible, if you don't believe it, it will have no power in your life. None. And there's a lot of Christians that read the Bible, and they will say in a big, big broad brush, well, yeah, that's the Bible, that's true. But when we get down to the actual scriptures or the actual promises or the actual instructions in the Bible, they give absolutely no credence, no trust. They don't put any of their weight on that. And therefore, the gospel that's supposed to bring them the power to salvation is not activated, not true for them, even though it is true for everyone who believes. Now, that's a really important concept, and we're going to build this for the next four weeks, and we're going to see all the way through the New Testament how important it is that we are intentional, that we are measuring and monitoring, and at many, many points, we are cultivating and growing and developing our ability to believe that the gospel is telling me the truth, because when we believe that, we welcome its power into our life, and God's word does what he promised he would do, but if you don't believe that, then the gospel is not the power of God to salvation to you because you chose not to believe, right? This is one scripture, but don't worry. We're gonna validate this over and over and over again. All right, let's go back, and I promise I won't interrupt you this time. No more tricks and no more, no more sidebars. Uh, we're gonna go all the way through, read both verses 16 and 17. Everybody from the top, ready? Read. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first, and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. That little term at the end say, as it is written, other translations say something like, confirming what the scriptures have told us all along, that those people that are justified will live by their faith. And by the way, the Greek word for live there is the word zao, and it doesn't mean to stay alive, it means to thrive. And so it's making a connection, and it's saying that the more we learn to grow from one level of faith to the next level of faith, it literally shows this progression, this moving forward, this growing, developing, maturing relationship as we're trusting God. And it's telling us here, as we learn to grow and trust the Lord, then the power of the gospel becomes more and more activated in our life, causing our life to flourish, causing our life to thrive. However, there's a number of Christians that accepted the word of God, the power of God to eternal salvation. And once they got saved and they're on their way to heaven, they came to a full stop. 
And so there's no more power of God to salvation. There's no more power of God to rescue and redeem and restore and, and, and rejuvenate. None, none of those thriving elements are happening. And it's not because God's word's in question. It's not because God's not sure if he wants to do it for you. It's because you didn't believe beyond just your eternal destination. You didn't go on and continue to grow. We're actually going to see that from Scripture today. Now, uh, you have your workbook, and we're going, to, we're going to look at faith today in a very broad brush, kind of introductory, through three questions. We're going to look at what faith is, we're going to look where faith comes from, and then we're going to look at how do we get faith, or I could say it this way, how do we develop and grow our faith on purpose. And so, But before we get there, I just felt like it was really important that we put a couple of fundamental uh, Bible truths. These are like assumed Bible truths that in today's culture, I don't know that we can easily assume like maybe we could, you know, years and years ago. So let me just point out a couple of things. If you like to take notes, these won't be in your workbook yet. You can jot a few of these things down. Um, and, and, and it's the whole thing about when, when we talk about faith, what does that mean? Because that's not an unpopular phrase, right? That's not even a phrase limited to church. You hear that all over in the secular world, in the marketplace. Well, you just got to have faith, man. Got to have faith. And, and we kind of sort of, you know, know what that means. It, it means we somehow got to stay confident and somehow we got to be thinking the best and optimistic, you know, and, and moving, you know, le leaning towards a brighter day tomorrow and all of these little cliches that kind of prop up our emotions. But when it comes to faith, it's interesting how when we get into the church, all of a sudden those things have to have concrete because they're one of the three main elements that we need to understand. Faith is what's going to dictate our ability to grow and mature in a relationship with Jesus so that we're experiencing all that he wants to do. And, and the interesting thing is, even though the Christians, as Christians, we kind of own this. It kind of comes from the Bible. You can meet a lot of Christians who are saying that they are people of faith and yet, I'm not being judgmental, I'm just kind of measuring fruit. When you look across their life, they're demonstrating no characteristics of a person of faith beyond just getting saved. Now, they will tell you confidently, we believe Jesus is the Lord and Savior, and he died on the cross, and that, therefore, my, my eternal destination is heaven. Woo-ha, praise the Lord for that, and I'm not meaning to make fun. But beyond that, they're not demonstrating any of the New Testament characteristics of a person of faith. So a couple of assumptions that we kind of all have to make sure that we at least have in, in the foundation so we can start building. Here's number one. When we're talking about faith from a New Testament, you have to be able to understand in the scripture which, which kind of faith are we talking about because the New Testament talks about at least three main ones. Now, there's several offshoots of some of these, but at least three main ones. The first one, the New Testament addresses the faith, the faith. And it's talking about kind of this broad overview of the historical tenets of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of the apostles' doctrine, and all of those things that the scripture, the first and foremost impression, a fundamental truth that was laid, that is the faith. So when the Bible talks about people abandoning the faith, or people you know, coming, to, or coming into the faith, it means they just stepped into Christianity and embraced all of those traditional, uh, historical, scriptural truths that would constitute being a Christian. The other thing the Bible talks about, uh, the New Testament especially, is false faith. 
And there's several variations of this false faith. One is it talked about wrong teaching that will come in and, and will twist the gospel and will cause you to be persuaded in a different way other than what was originally intended. It also talks about, in, in James especially, the inconsistency of someone who says they have faith, but they have no action that's put to it. It's just kind of an intellectual acknowledgement of something that the Bible said or something that they heard from somebody, but their life is not based on that. And James says, don't ever call that faith. That is not faith. And we'll look at that in just a minute. But here's the last one that I want to put just a little bit of attention on. And, and that is, you'll see in the New Testament about the dangers of being presumptuous. It's people replace faith in God for presumption in what God, they think God will do because of his overall character. And so, for example, uh, there are people that, that, you know, that faith is actually believing that God will do what he said he would do. But there are people that are believing that God, because he's a loving, gracious, generous God, will do what they want him to do. That's not faith. That's presumptuous, by the way, and that is super dangerous and destructive, not just for your life, because you'll make decisions that are not based on God's promise, and you'll get out in the middle of a journey, and the whole thing will fall apart, but it's also dangerous because when it falls apart, other people are watching, and they'll say, oh, so this whole faith thing doesn't work. Well, no, that wasn't faith in the first place. In fact, it's so serious. Let me just read this one uh, psalm. Uh, in Psalm 19, this one verse rather, verse 13, Psalm 19, this is the, the psalmist praying, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. That's where we just presume, or some people would say we assume that God's going to do this. Hey, well, what are you going to do in that situation? Well, I'm just going to trust God. What does that mean? Well, we don't have any details. We don't have any undergirding to that. We're just presuming that the overall goodness of God is somehow going to, you know, turn up in my favor. But remember, the gospel of Jesus, the promise of God is of no value to you if you don't believe. So if you believe broad, then you'll get in a broad experience. If you've entered into a, to a conversation, to a time of prayer, and you grab some things from the Lord, his promises, then you're going to get specific results. But the psalmist said, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Listen, they control people. They'll control you. They will keep you broad and generic so that you'll never get specific and intimate. Not only that, but it goes on and says, keep, me, uh, keep them, they shall not have dominion over me. Uh, then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent uh, of great transgression. And blameless is, I won't have this history of up and down and up and down, crash and burn, stepping out in faith, failing, stepping out in faith, failing. And I won't then commit a greater transgression and that is my reputation or what I'm teaching other people by my life is leading people away from the things of God, not towards the things of God. So the first one is the faith, the broad faith. The second one is some version of a false faith. Sounds like faith, looks like faith at first, but it's not what the Bible calls faith. Here's the third one that we're gonna concentrate on, and that is what I'm, I'm just gonna call an active everyday faith. Not a term you're finding in the Bible, but you hear it described 
Like in Romans 1, 16 and 17 that says the just are going to live by this. Their life is constituted by putting their trust in God. And, and it, it's a trust that grows from one faith to the next faith. Literally, apo ice in the Greek means you come out of one level of faith and you've grown and learned some things and you get to step into a higher level of trust and a higher level of understanding. And that journey goes step by step by step from the time you accept Jesus all the way until you go home to meet him. It's never supposed to stop. More and more intimate, more and more trusting. And that kind of leads us then to the second basic understanding that we have to make sure that we all get together. And this one, if I had to pick one, is probably the most important. So I saved it to just before we got into the material. That's this, listen. Faith in the Bible is based in and measured through relationship. That's really important because we're going to see this more and more as the study goes. But let me tell you what, faith is not a feeling. Faith is not a, a, like an equation. Well, if I can put enough God's Bible promises, if I can put enough scripture together and stack it up, you know, then see I've made a case God has to do it. No, faith is not an equation. Faith is not some kind of a leverage or a negotiation. None of those things are faith. Faith is based in a trusting relationship with God. Let me show you a couple of scriptures and we're going to get right to your workbook. Romans 10.9 says this, and this is the scripture, one of the main ones that everybody looks at for salvation. And by the way, it's true for salvation, for eternal salvation, but the same principle applies for every promise of God every part of our salvation package, it says this, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, if you read that verse slowly and you're trying to understand what does this really mean, you're gonna see three really big meaty parts jump out. The first one is if you really believe something in your heart to the point that you're willing to acknowledge it, There's a lot of things we're thinking about, but we don't say anything because we're still wrestling on the inside. But if you get your heart locked in and you really believe something to the point that you're ready to acknowledge it, then the Bible says then that that brings change, that brings transformation. You're literally opening the door to step through adjustments that will move you to a different place in life. That's true everywhere, right? First time that you, you know, said, I love you to somebody. I mean, that was a game changer. I remember standing at the altar in front of a pastor with Debbie and I said two little words, I do change my life forever. But I believed something in my heart to the point I was willing for it to come out of my mouth and my life has never ever been the same. Praise the Lord, I ain't going back. She's a wonderful, wonderful wife. But this is how this works and so if you understand, but notice what you're believing in your heart and what you're acknowledging. The first thing is you're acknowledging Jesus is not just Savior, he's Lord. He's God You're not. He gets to decide. He gets to lead. He gets to guide. We're his sheep. We're his children. We don't get to make our own choices. And he just kind of comes along and sprinkles blessing dust all over us. He's the Lord. So we we submit. We give him charge. But not only that, notice this. It says that God raised him from the dead, which means Jesus really died. But he really came back to life, and that's important that you understand because that means this relationship you're stepping into is with a living person. 
This is not a set of rules. This is not some kind of success seminar of equation where if you can get these three principles stacked up the right way, it's not. This is a living relationship with him. And you're acknowledging that I get it. He's the Lord. He's the Lord, but I'm acknowledging that he's alive and I want him to be my Lord. When you agree and acknowledge to those two, he's the Lord and he's alive, then you initiate a relationship with him that we first call salvation, but then it moves into maturation or maturity and through a life of submission. So it's like when Debbie and I first got married, the moment we stepped out of the, off the altar, I'm no longer a single guy, I'm a married guy. But from that point on, I move into a different phase of relationship and now I've got to grow up and learn how to be a good husband and eventually how to be a great dad and eventually how to be a great grandpa, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's levels of, of maturity and that's what we're acknowledging. But you have to understand all of this is in relationship. So when we look at faith through relationship, let me tell you what Bible faith is describing. Sometimes in principle terms, other times in examples, it's describing a measurement for you to take in your current relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you trust him? Yes or no? Well, kind of so. Okay, then you need to grow that. No, I, I honestly really don't. Okay, then you need to deal with that. It measures a, 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 the relationship meter, the trust meter in your relationship at any given moment in any given area with the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, if we really want to dial that in, Hebrews chapter eleven six tells us that a lot of that measurement is really based in your belief that God is willing to do what he promised he would do. We know he can do it, but do you really trust him enough that he will do it for you just like he promised? Well, there, there's, I mean, there's the crux of every relationship, right? If I'm going to be in a growing relationship, I have to trust this person. I have to be able to talk to them about some really challenging, weighty, messy things. And we have to be able to find the same page and walk out together like, okay, I got your back. You got my back? Okay, good. Then this, this is how we're going to, we're, 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 we're together, right? We're going to do this together. That's the whole measure of faith. So listen, if you're measuring faith any other way, listen, it's a shallow version that's never what the Bible intended. We're going to see principles. We're going to see practicals. But all of these are based in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We can never, ever, ever forget that. This is really important. Here, and here's another scripture that Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. This is where I ask you to turn to the one Old Testament. And we have to look at this one briefly. We won't be able to get deep. And it deserves a lot. But we can't give it, uh, give it its due this morning. Because this is why. When we start talking in these definite terms about trusting someone in the relationship, that they're gonna do what they promised they would do, that they're faithful, that they're gonna come through, we have to acknowledge, even moment, just momentarily at least, the reality that we know good Christian people who were believing God in some area and it hasn't happened for them yet. They've been doing this a long time. For some of them, they, they went ahead and, and passed and they're in heaven now and it didn't happen for them while they were here. Whoa, whoa, what, what do we do with that? Because if God's faithful and my relationship is I'm trusting you to do what you promised you would do, then what do I do with these other people? Wonderful people, Christian people, passionately love the Lord people, but we see it didn't happen for them. How, what, what do we do with that? How do we reconcile with that? It's like the fly that gets in the ointment 
And when some Christians see it, even some Bible teachers see it, they just completely abandon the whole thing. But listen, there's a number of understandings in the Bible, we're going to look at one this morning, that will help us at least to find a category temporarily while we're learning about faith, and then at some point we get to come back. Listen to Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do, some translations say, experience all of the wonderful words of this law. So it tells us, listen, when we're talking about a life of faith, there's at least two categories that we have to kind of walk with. And by the way, stay with me because this is going to make practical sense in just a moment. Two categories. The first category is what the Bible terms as the secret things. And it comes from this Hebrew word that, that describes something that's concealed or in this particular passage like others that we see in the Old Testament, it means something that's personal or something that's private. Like Psalm 91, he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High, same word, and it means that this, this is a place that's sheltered in, in God's personal space that's sheltered in God's most loving, caring, endearing treasures, something he's pulled into his personal, his private world. And so it says there's secret things. Let me just translate that. There are things about the life of faith that you and I will never know. There are result-oriented. Why, why did some people get this and other people didn't? Listen, there's just things that we will never know, partially because they're God's secrets, God had, had, had reasons why he did what he did, and he's not going to tell us. Other parts of that secret place is private between God and the individual. We don't get to know. We're, we're just looking from the outside in, right? So we think, wow, what happened? Because everything looked like it was great. We, we don't know what was going on, on the inside. Now, jump, don't jump to suspicion. So they were bad. They were evil. No, no, no. There, there's a lot of growth, maturity reasons. But sometimes, in fact, at the end of Hebrews chapter 11, it talked about people that did not receive God's promise here on earth, God having some better thing in mind. I'm just saying, we have to leave category. Now, here's where it's practical. Debbie and I tried to be as, as honorable parents as we could. We had, we had three children, and we tried to say, look, this is mom and dad's heart. These are the things that mom and dad promised. We're going to be committed to you. But I'll be the first to tell you, and my kids can validate, that didn't always get measured out the exact same in the same way to every child. And most of the time, when one of them would question, well, how come you did it for them and you're not doing it for me? That's my business. Sometimes I would explain, but sometimes I can't explain because I've got something going with one of my children that the other ones don't need to know about. This is personal. This is private. And you don't need to understand that. You just need to come back and realize, I'll do what I promised I would do with you. Stay with me on this one. And this is, we have to leave room for God to understand this. So there's secret things, right? But then he said, then there's a whole other category called revealed things. And this word revealed in the Hebrew means something that's intentionally shared, something that's intentionally gone public, something that's uncovered, something that's disclosed so that all of us can understand and lock in and never have to question it again. Oh, no, that, that's common knowledge. That's public knowledge. No, this, this, is how, this is how it is. This is what God promised. Let me just kind of sum it up because we don't have time to stay here. Listen to me. We're not responsible for the secret things of God. 
I'm not responsible for why it didn't work here and why it worked a little bit kind of sort of over there. And I'm not responsible for any of those things. That, that's not a detriment to my faith. What I'm responsible for is growing in a relationship of those things that have been revealed. Is leaning into what God did say and what God did promise. Well, how come he didn't do it over there? Well, I, I don't know. That's not my life. And I have to give God space to have a secret. Maybe he thought the better way to heal somebody was take him on home. Maybe he thought the better way to heal somebody was let's grow some things in your character and in your faith so that when you do get your healing, man, you can march on this and the devil can never come back. There's a lot of different reasons. But here's what I know. I'm not responsible for the secret things of God, at least not in the lives of other people. I'm responsible for the revealed things of God, including trusting God in secrets. God just told you, hey, some of these things are secret. Uh, I'm not going to tell you about them. Okay, well, then you have to wrestle with that. Do I trust God that he's still honorable to what he did say he would do, even though in this scenario with someone else, it looked like he didn't do what he said he would do? Well, I got to trust him there. Yeah, but he told me some things are secret, not my business, and so I've just got to stay with him on this. And we, we get this in practical life, right? Especially when we're the ones that are making decisions, but we, we get it all fuzzed up here. We don't really understand that. Listen, when we do that, when we realize secret things and reveal things, not responsible for secret things, definitely responsible to grow and mature in the revealed things, then all of a sudden Romans chapter one, verse 16 and 17 starts making sense and activating in our life. The gospel brings to us the power of God to salvation, sozo. Not just eternal salvation, everything in the salvation package. And every time I lean into an area with the Lord and say, well, talk to me about this then. And I see the gospel brings me truth. The gospel brings me a promise. The gospel brings me redemption and restoration in that area. And if I'll lean in to say, man, that just stretches my brain. And it's really hard for me because I see a lot of, I, I know that. But come back to a relationship with God and say, but if you promise, then you promise I will believe that. And this is really, really important. And so we, we have to frame these things in first. All right, with that, turn to your workbook. Turn to your workbook, and we're going to get, look at three questions today, and we're going to answer, first of all, this is broad brush, so what is faith? Now, I've given you a lot of aspects of it. It's based in relationship. We're not talking about the faith. We're not going to talk about uh, false faith, particularly. They'll be woven in, but we're going to talk about everyday active faith or the measurement of our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ in any given area, specifically in those areas as to whether or not we think he's willing to do what he promised he would do. I know those, that, I mean, that's the, that's the bullseye. That's the crosshairs in the bullseye of what trust means. But you said, and you didn't, we, we got to talk about that. And that's what Bible faith really means. Hebrews chapter 11, verse one is the last verse I asked you to turn to. And we'll throw in a few others, but we're going to kind of ride this for a little bit here. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 says, now faith is the substance, other translations say the, insur the assurance, or faith is what creates a confidence for those things that are hoped for. We talked a lot about hope, the expectations that you have, and goes on and says it's the evidence or the proof of things not seen. Remember in Romans 1.16, uh, we just said that the power of God comes, uh, the gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes well, that particular word is the word pisteo, and it's actually the verb form of the word faith that we have here. This word faith, pistes, is not really the same as the way we would use the English word believe. They're related, but they're not one and the same because pistes means that you are convinced of a truth, 
convinced of a promise to the point that you will alter the way you're thinking and the way you're living. So you didn't know what you're going to do about something, and all of a sudden your best friend called you and said, man, I heard you were struggling. Listen, man, I got you. I got you, and I got the perfect thing for you. And you get out the phone, and you go, oh, and you're not stressed at all anymore because you trust that person. You know they have the resource or, or the, the ability to do what they promised they would do. And so you walk away, and someone's, what you smiling about? I just had a call. Man, just rock my world. Everything's different. The problem's still there, but the answer's on the way, and that's what faith is. Faith is being so convinced that it changes you. You're thinking differently. You're talking differently. You're making decisions differently. Faith is not a, well, we'll just kind of see. Whereas belief, you can believe something but not have faith. You can believe, well, no, that's what they said. No, I believe that's what they said. Yeah, no, I heard them. No, in fact, I got it. You know, we happen to be recording some and that's what they said right on the tape or that's what they said right in the contract. You can believe they said it but not be convinced that they meant it and they're going to follow through. In fact, that's what Pastor James was talking about in James chapter 2, verse 17. He said, faith by itself or believing, just, just acknowledging something by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Listen to the message translation. I think it's kind of clever. Eugene Peterson does a good job. He said, God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense. I mean, it's pretty straightforward, right? But you hear it in the church all the time. All the time, people are just saying, well, you know, the Bible says this, and they're not living like they believe any of that because in reality, they don't have faith. They believe that the Bible says it, but they don't believe that God meant it to the point that we can trust him to follow through. That's where faith comes in. In fact, nine verses later, here's what the James chapter two, verse 26 says. It says, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Let me go back to Eugene Peterson again, the message translation. He said, the very moment you separate body and spirit, you end up with a corpse. Separate faith and works and you get the same thing, a corpse. And there's a lot, listen, a lot of Christians that are in a very corpse-like form walking around kind of saying, you know, I'm a person of faith, but there's no life there. And, and it's hard to find a gracious way to say, can I talk to you about that? Because I, I know you're acknowledging the truth of the Bible. I mean, you're saying God's word is true. You're even talking about God's promises. Maybe you've even got a couple of them in your pocket or on the bathroom mirror, you know, that you're quoting every day, but it's not penetrating your heart. It's just an acknowledgement in your head that you believe intellectually that is actually what the Bible says. But it hasn't become a relational transaction on the inside so that something changes and you say, no, 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 that's not just what God said. That's what he meant for me in this situation. Now, when that happens, something happens in your heart and you know right away that you've stepped into faith. And so that's what faith actually is. It's this relational measurement of trust. You can tell me what God said. You can even tell me you believe God said it. But what I want to know is, do you trust him enough that your life is lining up and be, because you, you believe God's got this? No, he, he promised me he's going to do it. I'm just not going to stress about that. That's where faith comes in. Okay, first, second question then. So if that's what faith is, where does faith come from? And there's two script, quick scriptures we're going to grab that will help us to, to broadly frame this in. Again, your workbooks have more supporting scriptures and some other comments, uh, so lean into those. But listen to Romans 10, 17. It says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. 
Now, that's important you even stop and read slow and understand what it said because here's what it didn't say that we kind of superimpose on that subconsciously. It didn't say faith comes by reading as long as you're reading the word of God. This says faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. And that's an important hint because if you look at, that, at the term word, it actually comes from the Greek term rhema, where the written word of God is described as the word logos. It means something written, something established, something that won't change. The rhema word of God is, de- describes something that's uttered by a living voice or something that's spoken. I've heard it said this way. It's like when you're reading the word of God, it's the word inside of the word. You're reading along or maybe you're listening to a sermon or you're listening to a podcast or something and, you know, and it's just blah, 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 blah. But all of a sudden something is said, something is read, and all of a sudden it just brings you to attention. You're like, wait, wait, what, what was that? What did you say? Something jumps up and, and, and takes on a life of its own inside your heart. That's when the Bible says that faith is coming. This is not just a written declaration from the Lord. Although that's super important because the written word of God, the logos word of God, establishes our parameters, what we can expect. This is, no, this is what we know God wants all the time. God always wants you healed. He always wants you blessed. He always wants you resourced. He always wants you full of joy. What father wouldn't want that for their kids? But the rhema word, the word that's spoken when you're in a situation and you're saying, God, talk to me about this. When something all of a sudden comes to life, that's when the heavenly father whispers something to you and says, hey, here's what I've said I want to do broadly, but here's what I want you to begin to move with me. We're going to start walking this journey in this area so that I can do something for you specifically. That's really important, this rhema word. And so, so we have to understand. Now, let me give you one more passage and we're, we're bringing it to a close. We have to go to John chapter 16 to understand the, the, the rhema word, the word within the word. In John chapter 16, there's two verses here. This is Jesus adding great detail to how that God speaks to us through the scriptures, but, but, but in our life. And this is what he says in John 16, verse 7 and 8. Nevertheless, I'm telling you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. Now, if you were sitting there, you'd be like, what are you talking about? If you got to literally personally sit with Jesus in discipleships, uh, you know, uh, discipleship uh, uh, events, if you got to go to conferences, he's healing people and multiplying lunch and, and feeding people. I mean, if you got to be that and all of a sudden Jesus say, hey, listen, I'm not going to be around anymore because I'm leaving, but trust me, it's better for you. How in the world's that better? And he's going to tell you how. He's saying, for if I do not go away, the helper, that's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Now listen, he's going to tell you three things that he's going to come and do. And as Christians, we need to understand all three of those. He said, and when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness, or we could say it this way, he will convict the world of sin and convict the world of righteousness and convict the world of judgment. And it's important that we understand that because when Jesus was here on earth, as wonderful as it was for the people that were right around him, they were being coached, they were being encouraged, they were being healed, they were being ministered to. But here's the problem. Jesus was only one person. 
You even see that through the scriptures where the crowd's pressing on him and one person gets through and Jesus is trying to minister to that person and another person's tugging on his robe. And he's got to say, hold on for a second, don't, don't lose that train of thought. And he has to address this so that he can come back over here. He was one person at one time with limited amount of energy. But when the Holy Spirit comes, he's not limited. He can talk to and coach and minister to every individual on the planet all at the same time. And when he's doing it, you feel like you're the only one in the world that he's talking to. And Jesus said, listen to me, that's a better deal no matter how you slice it. That's a better deal. But he went on to say, but when he comes, these, this is what he's going to be focused on. He's going to be coming to convict, or it really comes from a legal term that means to convince. That means he's going to step into a situation. He's going to say, hey, I want to talk to you about this. He's going to start laying out the facts, even the ones that you didn't think about, the ones you don't want to consider. He's going to lay out the facts. Then he's going to bring in how God feels and what God's word promised. And he's going to build all that till he builds a case so that he can literally form a conviction or a, a lodged truth in your heart that you have to acknowledge, well, yeah, you're right. You're right. That's not the perspective I had, but you're right. Okay, then, then I'll trust you because you, what you laid out is, is 100% right. He's going to come to convict or to convince us in three different areas. And this is really important because the first area he's going to convince us in, he's going to come to convince the world. He's going to cross-examine them. He's going to bring conviction and convince them, hey, listen to me, you need Jesus. You're, you're lost and you know, even if you've got some parts going really well, there's other parts that are really empty and really hollow and really shallow. And listen to me, you cannot be the best version of who God created you to be, who you want to be, without having supernatural Savior in your life. You need to be rescued. And it takes him a while to convince people, right? But he keeps working and works and working and he convinces them and finally they recognize that they can be forgiven of all their sin. They don't have to carry around all their failures and all their shame and, they, and Jesus can come and give them new life and they open up to a whole new covenant or a whole new contract of opportunity and, and promises with him. And, and this is a wonderful thing. By the way, every Christian understands that and champions it. Yeah, go God. We're praying for people that aren't saved. Holy Spirit, talk to them. Holy Spirit, bring somebody to him. Convince him that, that, he's who, that, he, that Jesus is who he says he is. Bring him into the kingdom. We pray for that, right? And that's a wonderful thing. That's how we got saved, by the way. But here's the amazing thing. The same Christians that are championing and pray, praying that the Holy Spirit will convict and convince people of their need for Jesus... They don't move on to the next thing that he's still working on and he's convicting or convincing us of righteousness. And the reason he's doing that, he goes on and he says, well, convict of righteousness because I go to my father and I'm not going to see you anymore, at least not face to face. You see, once we get saved, we think that, you know, that, that wrestling match that happened on the inside that finally brought us to humility and we say, okay, we give up. We need a savior. Come and wash me and clean me. Be my Lord. But that same Holy Spirit now, he just shifts and he says, okay, now let me talk to you about something else. And he begins to convince you that you still need God, but now you need to access all of God's favor and God's blessing in your life. But there's a lot of Christians that shut that down. They're passionate about conviction of the Holy Spirit to, to, you know, towards sin, but they'll shut it down when the same Holy Spirit's trying to convince them that Jesus qualified them to step into a life of promise and blessing. And you say, well, why is that? Well, I can tell you part of it. I'm not a counselor, but it's really difficult for the human mind 
to accept the righteous gift of God while we're still aware of all of our weaknesses and all of our sins and all of our shortcomings because our own conscience talks to us and says, you don't deserve that. And the truth is we don't. But that's so wonderful about the grace of God. He came and in his mercy, he rescued us and birthed us into his family so that by his grace, then he can give us all of these things freely. We couldn't earn it if we wanted to because it's not something you can earn. It's a free gift. And the Holy Spirit has to work to convince you of that. Some of you, he's got to work to convince you God wants you to have more resources flowing in. He's got to work to convince you God wants you to have a healthy marriage. He wants to heal that. He wants to bring it together and make that marriage a testimony. For some of you, he's got to work to convince you God is your healer. I don't care how big or how small, how devastating or how minor it is. I don't care what, what part it is, how long you've been suffering with it. Jesus died on the cross, stripes on his back so that you could receive healing right here on earth and then go to heaven and be ultimately healed. He's going to have to work to convince you of that because you've got a lot of reasons why that probably doesn't apply to you. But the same Holy Spirit that was dog-eared about convincing you that you need a Savior is that same Holy Spirit that's trying to convince you now that you absolutely are qualified and you need to open up and receive the righteousness of God, the grace of God, because this is what he promised. There's one more thing it, it, as he gets us there. These last two are kind of simultaneous, but it says, verse 11, that he also is going to convict us of judgment because the ruler of the world is judged. And this is another area that's really important. It has to do with victory with authority over the enemy, over sin, and all the consequences that we already have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you need to understand this, just because it looks like that evil, like the enemy has free reign in the world, like he can do anything he wants to anybody he wants, and some of you kind of live in fear, like that just stay really quiet in your Christianity, because if you take a half a step out, then the enemy's going to see you, oh, get her, you know, get him, and listen to me, he doesn't have that kind of free reign like you think he does. In fact, there's lots of scriptures in the Bible. Some of them are listed in your workbook. Romans 5, 17, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6, Ephesians chapter 1, verse uh, 17 verse 20, uh, through 22. Those are just a few samples. And all of these are telling us that when we became children of God, we were pulled out of darkness and we were elevated to a kingdom of light that literally in the spiritual dimension, it is illegal for the enemy to mess with us. We're off limits. God sees us that way. We're covered in the blood, we're hemmed in by Jesus, we're protected, and we're off limits. But listen to me, remember, he's a thief, he's a liar, he's a terrorist. He comes only to do one, one thing on a string, of, a string of levels, to steal, kill, and destroy, and so he's going to keep trying anyway. But that's especially when you as a Christian, rather than an attack coming, or rather than you, you know, you kind of experiencing that same thing that you, I just thought God just delivered me from that, and here I am, I'm feeling it's all coming back again, rather than surrendering, you need to listen to the Holy Spirit who's trying to convince you to build a case, trying to convince you to stand up and say, no, 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 not, not me, no, you can't do me. David understood this in Psalm 91, right? When he said, a thousand will fall at my side and 10,000 at my right hand. These are fellow believers he's talking about. He's not being judgmental to them. He's saying, I don't know about the secret things going on in their life, but I know about me. God and I have already talked. He's going to be my protector. A thousand may fall at one side, 10,000 at my right hand, but listen, it's not coming near me. No, 
It's not. You say, what are you talking about? Listen to Psalm 107, verse 1 and 2. And some of you will sing about this and will rejoice in it. You just don't think about the personal reality. It says, oh, give thanks to the Lord. For he's good, for his mercy endures forever. Listen to verse 2. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. When he has redeemed, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy. Now let me just ask a basic Bible question. We know about redemption in the New Testament. The Bible says that God paid the price to purchase us back out of sin and out of darkness so that what Jesus, you know, didn't deserve, he took that punishment on so that what we did deserve, he brings us now over and brings us into blessing. That's called redemption. He paid a purchase price, but once he did, he walked us away from the slave market and we are completely free. He's got a receipt. No, I purchased them. Debts and everything. I purchased it. I cleared, cleared the balance. They belong to me now. Okay, now, I want you to respond. How many of you, as believers in Jesus Christ, you say, I'm redeemed from the hand of the enemy by the Lord? Let me see your hand. Yeah, not as quick and popular as it was at the beginning of service. Maybe because you're not as confident. Maybe because I already tricked you once and you don't want me to do that again. But here's what I want you to understand. You have to begin to listen to the Holy Spirit. Because if you really believe you're redeemed, even if you've only thought about that in terms of your eternal salvation, if you believe that you're redeemed, you're not going to the bad place, you belong to the family of God, you're going to the good place, if you believe that, you need to let the Holy Spirit keep convincing you, and when something happens in your life, you need to stand up and say, well, time out, time out, I've been redeemed. No, that doesn't apply to me. No, I'm off limits. No, Jesus purchased that so that I didn't have to be involved in that anymore. Jesus shed his blood and purchased that, so I didn't have to live like that anymore. No, I object, I'm not going to do that. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. I'm amazed at getting around redeemed people, and they're going through all this stuff, and I'm like, why don't you speak up? You don't have to do it publicly right away, but why don't you speak up at least in your prayer life? Why don't you speak up in the word of God and say, whoa, whoa, time out, that's illegal and you know it. I'm calling, the, I'm calling uh, you know, the heaven's army to come and defend this because I'm not in that group anymore. I've been brought out of the kingdom of darkness. I'm in the kingdom of light. I'm just giving you one little example, but I'm telling you it's all over the Bible. Listen to me. The Holy Spirit's working on us. Salvation first, but then he's working to convince you everything that God has available is not because you're a good little boy and a good little girl. It's because Jesus paid the price and he wants to give you a free gift. Second of all, yeah, but you just don't understand the enemy. Forget the enemy. We don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. Jesus already settled this. It's now just waiting for you to, to, to let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Someone, you can go home today and someone could have broken into your house. I'm not speaking that over you, but someone could have broken into your house. And it's up to you whether you just say, ah, shucks, because I really liked all those TVs. Or you get on the phone and say, uh, I need your county sheriff down here as quick as you can. Because someone came in and took my stuff. They have no right to do that. Some of you can in turn call homeowner's insurance and say, hey, someone ripped me off and I know I'm covered in the policy. See, these are practical things that we live by. If we don't, people look at us and say, that's just irresponsible. That's silly. Why wouldn't you do that? I don't know why we can't seem to apply it to spiritual things. But I can tell you this, the Holy Spirit is working to convince you 
to build a case to say, trust me, trust me, trust me, trust me. Here's the last one. And we're not going to have time to go over this. I'm going to give you a quick overview of it. Just the first part and you've got the rest in your workbook. We already talked about what is faith. We talked about how do we get faith. I'm sorry, where does faith come from? This is the last one. So how do we get faith? And again, we're not going into detail, but Mark chapter four, Jesus tells the same parable over and over and over again so that you and I can have plenty of time and plenty of example to draw from it. And I've got it outlined in your workbook for you there, but let me just, let me just point this out. Mark chapter four, verse 14 says, the sower sows the word. There's a lot of ways to get the word of God into our heart. We can read the Bible and study. We can do devotions. We can do journaling. We highly recommend that. We can listen to podcasts. We can come to church and and hear it live, you know, and all those things are important. But let me tell you, ultimately, no matter how you get exposed to the word of God, the Holy Spirit's the one who sows it into your heart. The Holy Spirit's the one who's speaking, bringing it to life and saying, listen, that, that was a great message. Pastor Gil's a wonderful pastor. Amen. But that one scripture that he brought out right there, something jumped in your heart and the Holy Spirit said, yeah, let's stick with that one. Let's hang on to that one. See the sower, the, the, uh, the, the Holy Spirit's dropping a seed in your heart. Now the rest of the parable is gonna tell about what happens to that seed. But let me just point this out, it's a seed. Notice it's, the sower doesn't plant trees. The sower doesn't plant orchards. He plants seeds. You know what a seed of God's word is? It's a tiny little thought, a tiny little insert. It's when you're sitting there and you don't have the full answer yet, but all of a sudden something's like, huh, I never saw that before. I never thought of that before. And the Holy Spirit drops a little tiny seed in your heart. And if you grab that seed and you say, I've never considered that. I need to understand that more. The Holy Spirit says, I was hoping you'd say that. And he begins to lean in and water and cultivate and you'll see this all the way through. The rest of the parable says this, the seed is flawless. The seed is incorruptible. The seed will produce every single time the same result. The problem is the soil. And it talks about various kinds of soil and I've made it super practical. You can walk through there and say, Holy Spirit, show me in various parts of my life what the soil of my heart is. Don't, don't think one soil. No, you've you've got one particular patch of soil that is your eternal salvation. Maybe that one's nice and soft and growing and wonderful. But you've got another one over here when it comes to your finances. And man, it's just like rocks and sticks. And it's really super challenged with all this other conflicting thought and opinion. And you need to clean that out a little bit. So the seed of God's word can get in there and go on and on and on to every area of your life. You're, You're working a whole farm inside of you. And the Holy Spirit wants to move from faith to faith from acre to acre, from piece of parcel of land to parcel of land and say, hey, can, can we work with this a little bit so we can get God's word in there because God has a wonderful plan for your life. Listen to me. This is the journey of people of faith. The just, the justified can watch their life flourish. Just grow and thrive in every area as they learn to walk step by step, level by level, in a life of faith, trusting the Lord Jesus Christ. We leave you with a question. We're going to close in prayer. What is it today that as we were talking, what did you hear the Holy Spirit say? What area jumped out? What thing is he reminding you and saying, I've been trying to talk to you about that. This is what I'm saying. Don't give up hope in that area. Don't just surrender that to, well, that's just how it is. That's not how it is for Christians. It's not how it is for people that are believing God and trusting him. Either we trust the Lord or we don't. 
And that's what a life of faith is all about. Heavenly Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you that as you're plowing our hearts today, that this will not just be an inspirational meaning, uh, a message that will help us for the moment, but you'll get things deep in our heart. They'll change us. They'll transform us. They'll renew our mind. And they'll help us to become those strong roots of faith, those strong trees of righteousness that you talked about that are drawing from the truth, drawing from the word of God. And no matter what's happening around, they just keep bearing fruit in their season. They keep flourishing with green leaves and you'll continue to be faithful to take them from one level of faith to the next. We thank you for that. We believe you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for more messages. If you like what you're hearing, share it with your friends. For more content from Lakeshore and information on services, check us out at lakeshorecf.com.